0: So for the last five weeks, we've been walking through Hebrews 11 in a series called Commendable Faith, this really unique chapter where the Holy Spirit um, looks backwards at the saints of the Old Testament and refers to their faith as commendable. And the big question that we're asking in this series is, what does it mean to have faith in God? And today we're specifically looking at the faith of Sarah. And I just want to warn you, I had to fight some real feelings of inadequacy this week as I looked at this story and studied this story and, and prayed the story of Sarah, the story of Sarah um, one, because I'm not a woman, obviously, um, so it was difficult to put myself in her shoes. Um, and second, because Katie and I, at this point in our lives, we, we don't have children. Um, we, we don't have kids, and so we pray that one day we will, but we don't. So it was hard to put myself in the shoes of a woman, and specifically a woman who desired a child but was unable to bear one. And so Um, With that said, let me read our text, and then I'm going to ask you to pray for me and pray for yourself. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 11, we're going to do verses 11 and 12. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Okay, here we go. Here is what is tricky about Sarah, the story of Sarah. There is nothing other than I'm a man and she's a woman. um, There is nothing in the scriptures other than these few verses in Hebrews that actually speaks of Sarah's faith, right? And, And so, In fact, we'll see in a minute that in Genesis, she actually demonstrates anything but faith, that she's actually full of doubt. So the question is, how is it that she is included here in Hebrews 11, that she would be commended for her faith? That's the question that we're going to try to answer this morning. But first, we're going to do a quick overview of the story of Abraham and Sarah so that we can have a clear picture of the weight of the statement that we just read in Hebrews 11. It was actually an incredible statement. So go to um, Genesis 11 and go to Genesis 11. Kyle talked about this a little bit last week, but in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he makes a declaration. He says, Abraham, go. I'm going to make a great nation from you, through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. But there's one problem, right? And it's a big problem. Abraham has no child at this point. In fact, it would be impossible for him to have a child. So look at Genesis eleven. In Genesis eleven, we see Abraham's family tree. I'm going to start. I'm actually going to start in verse twenty-nine. It says, "Abram and Nahor took wives." The name of Abram's wife. And by the way, um, Abram, Abraham, Sarah, Sarah. I'm going to unless I'm going to read it as in scripture, but I'm just going to talk about Abram and Sarah because God's going to call, change their names in a couple chapters anyway. So just so there's no confusion there. So. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. So here's the question. If your offspring is going to bless the nations, what do you need? An offspring. Good answer, guys, right. But Sarah was barren and that's a problem. And thus begins this great tension from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 21. How is God going to fulfill this promise? Now, if you would for a second, just imagine the stress. Imagine the stress if you're Sarah, right? God has promised that generations of, that will come from Abraham, that, that will be like the dust of the sand, that's what he says in Genesis 13. When he reaffirms his promise, he says in Genesis 13:14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Think about Sarah here. Can we assume, infer, that she felt insufficient? Can we assume that she felt inadequate? I think so, especially considering that during this time in history, a woman's ability to bring forth children <clears throat> was everything. That, that was the expectation and the only expectation of the culture. culture. That is what she contributed. Your children was your honor. They were your worth. They were your security. And a woman who could not bear children during this time was looked at by the culture as a disgrace. Imagine the weight on her. Before God had even made a promise to her and Abraham, she was probably already alienated by her husband, by the culture. And then God comes and makes a promise that her child would be a blessing to every person on the planet. I mean, the weight on her had to have been enormous. It had to have been so alienating for her. I mean, look at the rest of her story. Look at their story in Genesis 16. We all, many of us know what happens in Genesis 16, but look specifically at what she says. Genesis 16.1, it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant." whose name was Hagar. And then look at what Sarah says to her husband in verse two. It says, Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Abraham, God has promised that he will make a great nation out of you. He has promised that your offspring will bless all the earth, but he has prevented me from fully participating in that promise. So think about it. Sarah's thought is if this promise is true, if we're going to have descendants that outnumber the sand and the ground and the stars in the sky, then what she's about to do is try to take control of everything. She's about to try to take control of the circumstances, to manipulate them, to ensure that the promise that God has made Happens and she's going to come up with the plan. Look at her plan in verse 2. It says, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, what's important to understand here is that this plan in this culture was very normal. It happened all the time. For Abraham to have a child with one of their servants and then that servant to give the baby over to Sarah was normal. No one would have batted an eye at that. But here's the problem. Culture might have accepted that, but that was not God's plan. God had something better and bigger in his plan. Now, here's what you see. We're not going to go through the whole story in Genesis 16, but here's what you see in this chapter. What you see in this chapter is compromise by both Sarah and Abram. They compromise. They try to take the plan of God in their own hands. They try to take control of it. Um, I read a book several years ago on addiction. I know that's a, say with me, it's a weird jump. Um, Which, what is addiction at its core? It's this belief that happiness can only come if I compromise what I'm created to be. Right? That you will try to find happiness outside of the de- design of God. So you compromise your design and abuse created things to fill your soul in this fantasy that true happiness can come from something other than God. That's part of what addiction is. It's the flesh's attempt to be satisfied, to drink in sand instead of the fountain of life. And so you abuse it and you abuse it and it's, you're still thirsty over and over and over again. But the question that this book asked was, okay, where does addiction start? Where does it start? And the answer to it actually caught me off guard. Um, And you can disagree with this, that's fine. But the author author said that addiction starts when your identity embraces the idea that you are not a worthwhile person. And I thought that was so interesting because I hadn't heard that before. I, I would actually adjust it further to say that the beginning of addiction is not only to believe that you are not worthy, but it's also to believe in self at all that you look around at your life and all you can see is failure all you see is shortcomings shortcomings and when you focus on self you look for selfish things to satisfy yourself and for Sarah I think the root of her compromise is that when she looks at her own self she just sees failure she sees what she can't do can't do you ever do that You look around and you just see where you fall short. Now, think about it though. She knows the limitations of her body, but she also knows the promise. She knows the promise. And she believes that in order to obtain that promise, I have to find a shortcut. I got to find a shortcut. We're no different. God has promised that our souls will have joy in this life, but when we look at self, we say, God, I don't see how that's possible. I don't see how that's possible, to be satisfied, to, to, to be in you, to, to have joy. So we compromise, compromise. We try to find that joy in something else, work, alcohol, TV. We fill our minds and our bodies with sand, and we try to take control of our lives, and we live under this false reality that I can create for myself what God has promised. That God has promised these things, but I'm going to find a shortcut because I think that I can provide it better. I've got a better idea. Notice though, God doesn't give up on Sarah. He doesn't cast her aside. In fact, he reaffirms his promise and specifically reaffirms to Abraham that Sarah would be the one to bring forth the promise. In Genesis 17, 16, he says, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. You know what's interesting here? It's not as if Sarah didn't believe the promise of God. She she just didn't believe that the promise would be fulfilled the way that God said it was going to be fulfilled. You know, I had originally titled this sermon, uh, Faith in the Promise. But after studying this week, I just felt like, no, that's not right. Because Sarah believed that God was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. She believed that he would do that. She even tried to take a shortcut to make it happen, right? But what she missed and what we miss is that there is a difference between having faith in the promise of God and having faith in the promiser. Does that make sense? I think too many times we look at the promise and we have faith in that promise rather than going to the one who made the promise, <laughs> saying, I have faith in the one who promised it. She believed that God was going to do it, but she didn't believe that the one who made the promise was going to do it just as he said he was going to do it. I mean, look at what Hebrews 11 says, though. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Him faithful. She doesn't have faith in the promise, she has faith in the promise, sir. So the question is then, how did she go from unbelief to belief? Jump down to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, starting in verse nine. There's a lot of background here. There's three guys that show up and no one knows if Abraham knows who they are, they don't, but from nine and 10, it goes from three guys to the Lord's there. And we don't know all the details about that, but um, verse nine, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Now, before we move on, consider something that I think is important for this moment. So far, at least in the recorded scriptures, God and Sarah have not spoken. I don't know if you caught that. God and Sarah have not spoken. God has only spoken to Abraham. God has only revealed his promise to Abraham. But this moment is significant because Sarah is going to be present for this moment. This moment, I think, is for Sarah. So they said to him, where's, your, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And it says, Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And for the first time, Sarah hears the promise herself. What's her response? Verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She laughs. Now, the question that everyone wants to know is why did she laugh? I think there are two things happening here in Sarah's mind. One is that at one point she was barren, but now it's not just that she's barren, she's also old. She believes that she and Abraham are just too old to have a child. In fact, Hebrews 11 describes Abraham as being what? As good as dead, right? I mean, Look, <laughs> enough said, Scripture. Good job in communicating, right? So Scripture says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So it was physically impossible for her to have children at this point. But I think there's another component to this, okay? Another component to this. She says, after I am worn out my, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Pleasure. So what does she mean by pleasure? I think that's important. Well, you might be tempted to think, like I was when I started studying this, that she's referring to having the pleasure of bearing a son. That's her pleasure, bearing a son, that she would finally get to have a child. But that's actually not what pleasure is referring to here. Because the word used here for pleasure is, and I'm glad kids are here for this, have fun at lunch, okay? Um, The word for pleasure is actually referring to sexual intimacy. It's very unlikely that in this time in their life that her and Abraham were intimate. Very unlikely, right? And what I love about this moment, what I love about this moment, is that it gives us an opportunity to see Abraham and Sarah as real people. They were real people, with real issues, right? I I think sometimes we, because we see them as heroes of the faith, we think that they floated instead of walked, right? They had no issues, but they had issues. They were they were old, physically unable to have children, and I believe, and there are many who believe this, that not only did they have real human issues, but they also had real relational issues. Think about it. After everything that had happened, the shame that Sarah had to feel for being barren, not being able to produce a kid, after everything that happened with Hagar in chapter 16, I'm willing to assume, and of course this is an assumption here, um, that they were pretty alienated from one another, Abraham and Sarah. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound weird. I think God is saying to them, hey, in one year, you're going to have a child. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to have sex by faith. I want you to believe. Now, why do I believe that? Well, consider this. Could God have made Sarah pregnant without her and Abraham getting together? Could God have just made Sarah pregnant? Duh, look, Jesus, right? but he didn't. He said, y'all get together. So basically he's saying, hey, you two get busy because I'm going to be back in a year, right? Do this in faith. I think it's in, because in this moment, God doesn't just want to reassure his promise to Sarah, but he, I think he also wants to heal Abraham and Sarah's marriage in me, not me, in God's, in me. God doesn't just want to to give them the miracle of a new child, but he also wants to redeem who they are before him as a couple. So she hears this, and she laughs to herself. And this laughter from Sarah, it's a laugh of despair. It would be like, if you walked up to me, you looked me up and down, and you went, you could be an NBA player. I would do exactly what you just did right there. I would laugh, right? Thanks, Rich, for proving my illustration, right? I would be like, what are you talking about? Like I'm 5'8", that's what my driver's license is at least, right? Like I, I'm out of shape, I shoot air balls. Like I, there's no way that I could be an NBA player. Well, she laughs. She says, there's no way. There's no way. We're too, we're too old, right? But look at what God says next. Verse 13, it says, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And he says this, is anything too hard for the Lord, at the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So that phrase is "anything too hard for the Lord," is actually translated strangely, in many of our translations, right? The, ex- the exact wording here should be, and the vast majority of the study I found on this verse confirms this, so I'm not sure why it's translated differently, but the exact wording in verse 14 should be, "Is anything too wonderful." the Lord. The phrase is translated to hard in the ASV, difficult in the NIV, and impossible in the CSB, which still communicates the, the core idea, right? But the original language communicates this idea of wonderful. Wonderful. In other words, the invitation to Sarah is much deeper than just God's ability to do something that is difficult or hard, but that God would have the ability to do something in Sarah's mind that would just be absolutely wonderful. It's anything It's almost too good to be true. It's anything too wonderful for the Lord. So God's invitation to Sarah here is actually to have faith in the wonder of God. Sarah, take that laughter of despair and turn it to a laugh of wonder that God would do something so hard and impossible that it results in wonder. And by the way, I wonder what things in our life we think is just too wonderful that we wouldn't have faith in God that's just too wonderful, right? Whatever you want to heal, heal our marriages, break addictions, I don't know what it is. Well, fast forward to Genesis 21, verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had promised, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So God did as he promised, and they named their son Isaac. Do you know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. Right? More specifically, though, it means to laugh and rejoice. It's a laughter of joy. It's too wonderful what the Lord has done. Right? Genesis 21:6, it says, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. That God has made a laughter of joy. You ever been so happy you laugh? That ever happened to you? Where it's like, I don't know something happens. Ashra's winning the World Series. I promise I will be crying and laughing out of joy, right? Now go back to Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Right? She considered him faithful who had promised. Now here's the deal. We don't know all the details. But at some point, Sarah believed. At some point. Sarah believed. At some point, she believed in the promiser that he is faithful. So here's my question for us. Do we actually believe he is faithful to his promises to us? You know, Sarah, all throughout her story in Genesis, she kind of plays this middle ground with God. Did you notice that? She plays this middle ground with God. God makes a promise that through you and Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. You will have a son. And she plays this middle, grain, middle game with that promise. She looks at her own limitation that she is barren and then she's old and she tries to find a way where she's indirectly involved in the promise. Well, since I can't have children, I'll just have my servant sleep with my husband and I will claim that that child's my own. But the problem is there is no middle game with God. Either you're in or you're not. There's death or there's life. Either you have faith or you don't, because the Bible doesn't speak and call us to live in this middle ground. It doesn't speak to the middle ground. The Bible talks to us in extremes. Have you noticed that? Like, especially the gospels, it speaks to us in extremes. You were dead. Now you're alive. Jesus looks at the Pharisees who found their worth in religious rules. They played the middle game and they played it well right? Thinking they could earn their salvation, thinking they could have this moralistic uh, religion that, that kind of lived to say, here's what I've done. So Jesus tells them in John 8, he says, you are of your father, the devil. That's extreme. And your will is to do your father's desires. He says in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He says, eat me <laughs> and you'll live forever. Mark eight thirty four. it says, calling to the crowd, to him with his disciples, he says, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his, his cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. See, there's no middle ground. There's no religious game to play. There's no, well, Jesus was a good guy who taught some helpful principles. There's no, well, God saved me, so now I'm just a good person. Either you believe that he is the son of God who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross and rose from the grave, or he isn't. And if you believe that, about Jesus, then he speaks some very specific promises to you. Do you know that? If you have faith in Christ, he speaks some very specific promises to us. That if you have faith in Christ, you know what he calls you? He calls you holy. Do you know that? He calls you holy. He calls you righteous. Not based on your own works, but on Christ's works. He calls you blameless. He calls you the saints. He calls you chosen. Here's the question. At this moment in your life, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that you're holy? Do you believe that you're righteous? Do you believe that you're chosen? For most of us, probably not, For honest. Probably not. Here's the, better, the bigger question. Are those things true? They are about as true as God telling a woman who was barren and old, that she would have a child. So please hear this. Just because Sarah didn't believe that God had chosen her to bring forth the offspring that would bless the nations doesn't mean it wasn't true. Just because she didn't believe it does not mean that it was not true. And just because you don't believe that you are blameless before God or that you are chosen by God doesn't mean that it's not true if you have faith in Christ. If you had a piece of paper and you wrote down your name, right? And then you drew a blank at the so if I wrote Colton Michael White and I put a blank. What would you put at the end of that blank? Not about me, about you, right? So you know, imagine putting your name on a piece of paper and then putting a blank. What would you put at the end of that blank? Would you put insignificant, failure, disappointment? Or if you were honest, would you put something like attempt to be moral, church attender? What do you think Sarah would have put? Barren, old, shamed? Would you have the faith to put beloved? You are a loved one of God. Would you have the faith to put righteous, holy, chosen, Think about it. Do you really actually believe that? That you are chosen by God, that you are holy, that you are the beloved of God, the loved ones of God? Do you have faith to believe like Sarah did? I don't think we hear that a lot about Sarah. We kind of pile on her. Do we have faith to believe like Sarah did? She considered him faithful who had promised. He promises that you are righteous in Christ. He promises that you are holy in Christ. He promises that you are chosen by Christ. So the question for us is, will we live in that promise or will we we try to compromise, find our worth somewhere else? We live in it, not because we have declared it's true, but we live in it because we consider him faithful who promises. Think about Philippians. He who began a good work in you will complete it, the day of Jesus Christ. So you may not feel like it. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It does not mean that it's not true. There's two things I want to mention before we close. First, for those of you that would hear this, and you might say, I identify more with the Sarah in Genesis 16 than I do with the Sarah in Hebrews 11. You say, all this sounds nice, but I still have a lot of doubt. I don't know if God really loves me, cares about me, or hears my prayers. And let me say this again. You may not believe God's promises right now, but that doesn't mean that they aren't true. True. That if you have doubt, don't brush that under the rug. Don't excuse it and try, just try to fit into a church. Be honest about that. Be honest with God about your doubt. Be honest with your home group about your doubt because God does not cast Sarah aside when she doubts. He does not cast her aside. He doesn't change the promise. The promise remains. And that's true for you too. That if you are his, he will be yours forever. That doesn't mean that you don't have permission to doubt, though. I mean, you just look at a couple chapters earlier. Abraham's like, "You say these things, but I still have no kid." That's when he makes the covenant. Be honest about your doubt. Be honest with people around you about your doubt, and press into His Word. Pray. This is a you've, God is sanctifying you every day. The second thing I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is this tells a bigger story, right? This tells a bigger story. That God's covenant with his people cannot come through human power. That's what this story tells. God's covenant with his people cannot be done through human power. It is God who provides and no one would have looked at Sarah, barren and old and went, good job, Sarah, you did it. Everyone would have known. That was impossible. This is impossible. God is the author The covenant, and that covenant is made in love, chesed, loyal love, and after many years, God would do what? He would do another miracle to fulfill that covenant. See, I think that the story of Sarah specifically is a foreshadow to another miracle birth to come. Where humanity looks at this picture and says, That's impossible. And then we say, Not with God that it's a foreshadow to another miracle to come, that God demonstrating that only through my power, only through my power, through my authority, authority, can humanity be redeemed. And that child, the one that would come thousands of years later, would fulfill one covenant and begin anew. Hebrews 10, 16, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their mind. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So let me ask you, if you really think about it, scripture calls you, me and you, dead. Our internal place is in hell. And there is nothing that we can do To fix that, to change that. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be alive? Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone would come and rescue us? That's what this miracle does. The first miracle was the wonder of Sarah being able to have a child. And I think it's more than just having a child, but it's being a part of God's covenant. God's promise. And now, the redemption of humanity is God looking at humanity and saying, I have provided a way. And so the question we have to ask is, is really there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is there anything too wonderful that he just can't do, that God would save us from our sins, that we would live for eternity with him? And you know what real faith is? Real faith is finding wonder in that truth. It's finding wonder in that truth that God has saved us from death to life and going, like laughing and going, that's just too wonderful to be true. That's what faith is.